welcome to the podcast. This podcast is where sermons, messages, and other presentations from Christ Community Church in Brawley, California are posted. For more information, you can go to www.cccciv.org and select the Brawley campus or find us on the App Store. Let's get started. Attempt for a moment, if you will, to put yourself in their shoes. They're being obedient to what Jesus has called them to do. He says, push out on the boat a little ways. I want you to go out onto the sea ahead of me. I'll meet up with you in just a little while's time, but I need to spend some time with the Father. I need some alone time. Why don't you guys set out and I'll catch up with you later. And so they do what Jesus asks them to do. And there they are on the sea. And as they make their way about halfway across the great sea, the wind begins to grow. And the waves become boisterous. And the waves are crashing over the bow of their their little boat. And they're bailing water out of the, the little vessel that they're in. And they're worried that this is it, that this is their last day, that this will be their last breath. That at the next wave that crashes over their bow, they will sink, never to see Jesus again. And it's at that moment, at their most desperate, that out of the corner of their eye, they see a shadow approaching. And through the midst of the clouds and through the midst of the the storm, as the lightning is crashing overhead and those waves are, are boisterous, they can see the silhouette of Jesus. And it says in the scripture that they became terrified because they think that it's a ghost. What other explanation can there be that there comes this one to us walking on the water in the midst of our trial, in the midst of our storm? So he calls out to them and he says, don't be afraid, it's me. Those of you who know the story know what Peter says next. He says, if it really is you, Jesus, command me to come out and to meet you on the water, then we will believe. Command me to walk on the water in the storm. See to it that I can make it out into the storm with you, Jesus. Then I will believe. Then I'll exercise my faith. Then I will have no doubts. And so Peter says, or Jesus says to Peter, come out, meet me on the sea. And he walks out and You who have read the story, you know that as soon as Peter makes it out onto the water, he takes a few steps, and then he remembers the storm he's in. He remembers the wind, he remembers the waves, he remembers the storm, the lightning, the crashing, the thunder. He remembers, and he begins to doubt, and he begins to sink, and in desperation, he cries out for deliverance. Maybe the shortest prayer that we read in the Bible, he simply says, Lord, save me. And Jesus reaches out his hand and he takes him from the water and he brings him into the boat and they make it to the other side and they're all saved. Jesus, our Savior, Jesus, our Savior, is a Savior who is there to deliver, to rescue you from your storm, from your trial, from your attack. Today's text we're going to be in is in Luke chapter 11. If you will turn there, let me kind of recap what we've done here over the last few weeks. We've gone into this series on spiritual warfare, and we really what we've wanted to do is to give our congregation, to give you, the sheep, a glimpse behind the curtain, if you will, just for a moment. We, we don't want you to walk into the battle naive. We don't want you to be baited into this trap that you, you feel like you have to wage war in the flesh because you can't win this war in the flesh. So we want to give you a glimpse behind the curtain, so to speak, to see what's really happening in the heavenlies, to see what's really taking place in the spiritual realm. And we've seen through the course of this who the real enemy is. 
You're not waging war against your spouse. You're not waging war against your boss. You're not waging war against your children. You're waging war against the enemy of your soul, Satan himself. And if you're going to be victorious in this battle, in this warfare, you're going to have to come to understand that whatever offense you have is not really your own, but it's the Lord who will fight the battle for you. In sports, they say that the, I guess in battle also, they say that the, the, the best defense is a good what? Offense. The best defense is oftentimes a good offense. Now in football, that means the longer that your, your offense is out on the field, that means your defense has to do less work. They're gonna be more fresh. They're gonna be able to control the line of scrimmage. So you want your offense out on the field as long as possible. That means you have the opportunity to score, not the enemy score on you. You follow? The best offense is a good defense. But here's the thing you have to, un- or excuse me, the best defense is a good offense. Here's the thing you have to understand though today. You cannot be that offensive weapon yourself. You have to trust the Lord to fight for you. That's the only way we're going to win this war. So we want you to catch a glimpse behind the scenes. We want you to see that there is one that is fighting on your behalf that is stronger than you will ever be and is far stronger than your enemy. And if you want victory, all you have to do is trust him and follow him out onto the waters, into the storm, and allow him to rescue you. It's as simple as that. So Luke chapter 11, let's look at what happens here. We're gonna read this text in its entirety and then we'll come back and kind of dig into this and pull it apart. Beginning in verse 14. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled, but some of them said he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a divided household falls. And if Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For if you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when a stronger man than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and he divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds the house swept and put in order. Then he goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. Heavy here, heavy here. We're gonna begin looking at this text by pointing out the rejection of the religious people in the crowd. If you're taking notes, you have your outlines there, pull them out. I think that they got corrected. Pastor Brett was actually going to preach today, but then uh, be praying for he and, and, and Amanda, his grandmother, or Amanda's grandmother passed away, so they went to go be with family. I think that you have my notes. Do you, who, who, do you have my notes there, I hope? It says my name, yeah? All right, perfect. So, the first note you're gonna take down there is we're gonna look at the rejection of the religious leaders. Now think about this just for a moment. I mean, here, you, you, can, you can kind of see that he's met by this, this, 
demonically possessed man. The, the, the possession is the first thing that is pointed out here. But I want you to see the, the greatness, the grandeur of our Jesus. Because the Pharisees had prescribed in their traditions ways in which people could be exercised of demonic forces. All right, And so even some of the Pharisees, Jesus alludes to this in this text, you have brothers and sisters who do this yourselves. They, they, they exercise demons, they cast out demons from people, and so how can you accuse me of casting out demons by Beelzebul, but you yourselves, your sons, do it themselves, all right? So they had a way in which this would happen, but the way in which it would happen began with identifying the name of the demon that was possessing the person. If they could discern the name of the demon that was possessing the person, they could exercise authority over that demon and that demon could, could be exercised, that person could be delivered from that possession. Now, the reason why this is important is because this is a mute man. He can't speak. He can't give the name, right? You remember Pastor Walter shared the story of Legion? Says, what's your name? My name is Legion, for we are many. Again, it's kind of giving an overture to how the, the religious people exercise demons. I need to know the name so I can cast the demon from this person. But here in this case, the man is mute. And the Pharisees and the, the religious leaders of the day actually taught that when Messiah comes, he will be able to deliver people from demonic possession without knowing their name. And here, this is exactly what Jesus does. Here's this man, and I, I don't know where this man was at before the possession. I don't know the hopelessness of his situation, but I do know this, that when that, I don't know what's going on there, that's probably me. I don't, I don't know what, what happened, but when he was possessed, when that, that possession took place, that man's condition was hopeless. Because according to his understanding, the only way I can be rescued, the only way that I can be delivered from this possession is if I can speak and I have no words to say. I cannot speak. That is about as hopeless a condition as it can get. But Jesus comes and everything changes for this man. He doesn't need to know the name. He just casts the demon from this mute man and he restores to this man the ability to speak, the ability to give praise God with his lips. We just sing these songs and we lift up our voices and we have these instruments and we give God praise. Your lips were created to give God praise. Listen to what it says in Psalm chapter 63. It says, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. The, the psalmist says, I've looked upon you, Lord, in the sanctuary, in, in, that, in that secret place. I've seen you. I've had an encounter with you. I, I know your goodness. I know your works. I understand your love. I've met with you in the secret place, beholding your power and your glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips are will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. I, I understand who you are, God. I see you, and my choice now is to give you praise. Because I've met with you, because I've experienced your grace, your power, your mercy, your goodness, your forgiveness, your deliverance, I will give you praise. The rest of my days, I will give you praise. This is why we have lips. This is why our, we have tongues, is to give God the praise that is due his name. The proper response to an encounter with God, with a holy, righteous, loving, merciful God, is to give God praise. David wrote in 
Psalm 51, when he was broken over his sin, when the Nathan, the prophet Nathan had come to him and said, well, I know what you've done. The Lord knows what you've done with Bathsheba and with Uriah. We know the wickedness. God knows the wickedness in your heart. And he's crying out to God for mercy and forgiveness. At one point he says this, he says, oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth and, and I will declare your praise. Open my lips and my mouth and I will give you praise for you do not delight in sacrifice or else I would give it. You're not looking for me to bring an animal to slay. You're not looking for me to bring some, all you want from me is a sacrifice of praise. Open my lips, loose my lips, give me the ability once more to give you praise and I will offer to you that praise that is due your name. That is the proper, appropriate response to having an encounter with God. So if in your life, you have struggle, you have trouble being able to offer to God a sacrifice of praise, have you really been encountering the Lord lately? Have you really been meeting with him in that sanctuary, in that secret place? Have you come away from the, the chaos and the responsibilities of life and said, God, I want to just meet with you. I want to have an encounter with you once more so that my lips will be loose, so that I can give you and offer to you the sacrifice of praise that you desire. This mute man, he has an encounter with Jesus and for the first time in I don't know how long, he can give God the praise that is due his name. I thank the Lord that when Jesus came, he came with authority over sickness and over disease and over these demonic forces. In, in Luke chapter four, you can read it later, he, he heals Peter's mother-in-law of a fever and word quickly spreads throughout Capernaum of what had happened. And so they begin to bring the town, the whole town brings their sick brings their possessed, they bring them to Jesus and he lays his hands on each of them and delivers each of them from sickness, from disease, from demonic oppression. Every single one of them was delivered, was rescued from their, their drastic, their desperate condition when they came to Jesus in faith. That same Jesus that laid his hands on those people in Capernaum wants to meet with you today wants to deliver you from your condition no matter how desperate today. This is evidence that he is not only willing, but that he is able to rescue and redeem you from your storm, from that trial that you are crying, God, I need rescue. God, I, this is too much for me. This attack, this warfare, I, I, I'm, I'm lost in this storm and in these waves. Rescue me. He will rescue you if you'll cry out to him like that today. So we see first off this encounter with the possession. Again, look at verse 14. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, gave glory to God, and the people marveled. The word literally means to stand in awe and wonder, to give praise. Now, in your notes, I want you to write this down, that there was a part of the crowd that responded with fascination. They were just amazed at how how powerful Jesus was. The fascination swept across many of the people and their hearts were tender, their hearts were ready, their hearts wanted to see more, their hearts wanted to dive in deeper. They were absolutely awestruck that here's a man, I've been taught from the time I was little that when Messiah comes, he'll be able to deliver demons from people without speaking their name and here it just happened. What does this mean for me? What does this mean for my faith? The fascination of this occurrence swept across the crowd, but there were some in the crowd who were not so fascinated but wanted to cling to their own power. 
And so if you're taking notes, I want you to take note of the accusation that is made by many of the religious leaders. Look at what it says here. It says that some of them, verse 15, some of them in, in the other gospels, we see that this was actually what was brought on by the religious leaders, by the Pharisees. Some of them said he casts out demons by Beelzebul. Now, Beelzebul is a compound word from Baal, which is the Canaanite fertility to God, and Zebub, which means dwelling or home or house. So you put these words together. Beelzebul is the Lord of the dwelling, the one who indwells people, the one who possesses people. He's able to do this. He's able to cast this demon out differently than the rest of us because he's working with Satan himself. Now, Think about that just for a moment because they're accusing Jesus. Again, these are the same people who've been teaching that when Messiah comes, he'll be able to do this. He'll be able to cast out demons without knowing their name. Now in this moment when he's actually there, he's actually arrived, now they're saying the only way that this can happen is he must be working with Satan. He's in contact with Satan. Satan has possessed him to the point that he's able to, to do this work. Imagine the hardness of heart that that must take. All of your life, you've been taught that the Messiah will come and he'll be able to do this. And now it's actually happening. And what do they say? They say, this is Satan at work. This isn't God. I'm not gonna give glory to God. I'm not gonna praise God that Messiah has arrived. What's happening is Satan is at work. And so they have this accusation, the hardness of heart that is there. In Numbers chapter 14, write that down. You can read this story later. But the spies in... Numbers 13, go out to spy out the land of Canaan. And they come back with a report. And they say, you know what? The, 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 there's, there's 10 of them that basically say it's, it's a worthless cause. The people are mighty. The cities are fortified. Their armies are strong. The men are giants. We're like grasshoppers in their eyes. There's no possible way that we can defeat these people in the land of Canaan. And so they give this word to the people. And the people are, are so depressed. They're so down. They're so terrified at the thought of going into battle into the land of Canaan that they actually say this. I wish we had never left Egypt. It would have been better for us to die in Egypt or to die in the wilderness than to come to Canaan and to fight these battles and to die in battle. So they say this, let's elect for ourselves a leader who will lead us back to bondage, back to Egypt, back to slavery. We'd rather go back there than meet these giants in the land. But there are two men, Joshua and Caleb, who say, you've got this all wrong. Yes, the, the, the people are mighty. Yes, the, the, the fortresses are fortified, but the land is a good, and, a good land, a good and fertile land. It's a land flows the, with milk and with honey, and God will give these people into our hands. They shall be as bread for us because God is on our side. The scripture says that those Israelites who wanted to return that it was rebellion, it was hardness of heart. It actually says that they had seen God's work with their own eyes. Look at this, Psalm chapter 95 says this. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test, put me to the proof, though they had seen my works. What have the children of Israel, what have they seen? Well, they've seen 10 plagues come down upon the people of Egypt. They've seen the Red Sea part. They've seen a cloud lead them by day and a pillar of fire lead them by night. They've seen bitter waters made sweet. They've seen 
angel food, manna, bread from heaven, fall every morning for them. They've seen water brought forth from a rock. They've seen quail provided in every direction as far as the eye could see. They have seen God's miracles and works over and over and over again. But when they see the battle that is at hand, when they see the gravity of the situation, when they're overcome with dread and with fear, they forget everything God had done. What has God been faithful in your life? How has God been faithful in your life? What has he done for you? Because in those moments when those waves are crashing in, when the fortresses are fortified and there's giants coming your way, you have to recall God's past faithfulness and it has to cause your heart to well up with faith and to say, the same God who delivered me then will deliver me now. It's not about my strength. It's not about what I can do. And you have to guard your heart from hardness. You have to make sure your heart stays soft. This is referred to, this text, this portion of scripture in in Numbers chapter 14 in, in Hebrews as the day of rebellion. The day that my people turned their back on me. That's the way God's word describes it. I don't want my heart to be that way. That's why I have to guard my heart. Proverbs chapter four says this, keep your heart, guard your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. It's life's little small compromises from a day-to-day basis that harden our hearts and sear our conscience and cause us to end up in a state of rebellion when we turn our backs from the Lord in the midst of the fight. I do not want to leave the Lord's side in the midst of a fight. So we see there's this accusation that is given and these same people that are are having such a hardened heart towards a a miracle, a miraculous work that the Messiah has done right before them in delivering this mute man, these same people are now requesting further signs. They want verification from Jesus. We want proof that you are who you say you are. That's not enough. The, the, demonic, the demonically possessed man being delivered, though he was mute, that's not enough. We want to see more. We want more signs. Show us something more that we might believe. I want you to understand this this morning, that witnessing the miraculous is not enough to lead you to salvation. You can be surrounded by the things of the Lord and still miss the, the Lord of the miracles. People chase miracles day in and day out and they forget about the God who is glorious enough, powerful enough, worthy enough to perform those miracles. And they worship the miracle rather than the miracle worker. Over and over again, the children of Israel saw sign after sign after sign and their hearts were hardened. Over and over again, Pharaoh saw sign after sign after sign, but the scripture says his heart was hardened. Don't chase after The sign, don't chase after the miracle, chase after the miracle worker. In John chapter six, Jesus is met by a crowd of people. It's after he's fed the 5,000 with just a few loaves and a few fish. He's fed, miraculously fed thousands of people and more people are coming to him. And he looks at them and he says, you're not coming to me because you even wanna see a sign. You're not coming to me even because you wanna witness a miracle. You're coming to me because you're hungry and you wanna be fed. You're missing the point, Jesus says. They go on and they say this. They say, well, Moses, our deliverer, the one from the Old Testament, the one who delivered us from our slavery, he provided manna for us in the wilderness. He fed us food. It's like they're hinting. If you are who you say you are, you'll feed us like Moses fed us. And Jesus says, you missed the point of that story. Because Moses didn't provide the children of Israel with anything. 
God provided the children of Israel with the manna. It wasn't Moses. That wasn't Moses who did that incredible work. And then he goes on and he says this, that whole story, that whole picture of the manna in the wilderness and, and it being provided every day. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the miracle. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You're missing the point in the midst of that miraculous work. You're focused on the work of the miracle rather than the miracle worker. Luke chapter 11, I want you to read this with me since you're already there. Turn the page just a little bit. Verse 29, it says this, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the son of man be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up at judgment with men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Show us a sign. Prove it. Prove you are who you say you are. Jesus says, there's one sign that I'm going to give. You know, it's like they're disregarding the miraculous healings, the, the people being delivered, the, the, the bread being multiplied, all of that, it doesn't count. We want more. Show us more. Give us more signs. Give us more proof, as if that wasn't enough, right? Then he says, there's one sign that really is going to be the sign to end all signs, and it's the sign of the prophet Jonah. As he was three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, a great fish, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. Speaking of the resurrection, there's one sign that I'm going to give, and it's the resurrection. Then he says, the men of Nineveh repented when Jonah preached to them. The Ninevites were wicked, wicked people. The Jews wanted nothing to do with them. They were known for beheading their victims and setting their their skulls on heads throughout the city so that people walking through the city square would just see all of the enemy's heads there. This is what happens when you oppose the Ninevites. They would flay the people's skins and wear them. They would set heaps of their enemies' dead corpses all around and build pillars of them. These people were wicked people. But when Jonah came and preached that the judgment of God is coming, the king called for a fast, the people repented, and they were spared. And Jesus says, someone greater than Jonah has come to preach to you, and you haven't repented. He says, the queen of Sheba the queen of the south, she came and she inquired of, of, of Solomon's wisdom. She heard of the, the wealth that was being accumulated in the kingdom and she wanted to see it for herself. She wanted to see what this was all about and now someone greater than, the, than Solomon is here and you still, you don't come inquire of me. You're going to be judged because you missed it. You missed it. There's one sign that I'm going to give. One sign and one sign alone. Jesus, in John chapter two, again, is asked by the religious leaders, show us the sign. He says, in, in, uh, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll rebuild it. And they say, it took us 46 years to build this temple. How will you do such a thing? And then when he's later crucified and he's resurrected, the disciples remembered this, and they knew that, oh, he was talking about his body. The sign that I'll give you is that destroy this temple, and in three days, it will be raised. In Luke chapter 16, There's the story of the rich man and Lazarus. 
And Lazarus is in torment. And he says to Father Abraham, please send Lazarus with just a little bit of a dip on his fingers of some water to quench this terrible burning sensation on my tongue. And, and Father, or Father Abraham says, it's impossible. There's no way. He cannot come from there to here. There's a gulf between us. And so the, the rich man begs and he says, please then send Lazarus to go warn my brothers. I've got five brothers. Send him to go warn my brothers. And what did... Father Abraham say, he said, you know what? There are uh, Moses and the prophets that have been preaching that this would happen all along. And if they won't hear from Moses and the prophets, even if one came back that was raised from the dead, they would not believe. What's the point? The point is this, is if the resurrection doesn't seal your faith, there is no sign that will do. In the book of Corinthians, it says that Jesus in his resurrected bodily form was seen by over 500 people at once. 500 people. What more proof do you need that Jesus is the deliverer, that he is the one that can rescue you? What more proof do you need? So you see this rejection of the religious leaders, but now I want you to see the response that Jesus has. Look at verse 17. If you're taking notes, the response of Jesus but he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, then by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. So there's this response. And what he's going to do is he's going to give this elaborate illustration Jesus is gonna give us this illustration to teach to us exactly what's happening, exactly what's going on. And in this portion, he begins by saying that every kingdom, or it says, the scripture says, but he knowing their thoughts. Think about that just for a moment because they didn't say this publicly to Jesus. He read their thoughts. He read their heart. He saw that hardened heart. He saw that heart that had seen those works of God and still rebelled and still turned their backs. He read their thoughts and addressed their thoughts. In Psalm 139, it says this, O Lord, you have searched me and you've known me. You know when I sit down, you know when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you've known it altogether. You get me. I cannot hide my heart from you. You might be able to fool the rest of us in the room today, but God sees your heart right there where you sit and you cannot hide that heart from him. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, addressed it and he says, what you're reasoning in your heart makes no sense. Satan's ploy is to divide and to conquer. If he wants to be victorious, there's no way he's going to divide his own kingdom by casting out demons himself. It just doesn't make sense. Jesus reasons. Why would, he, why would he ever do this? Again, this is Satan's ploy in our lives. Look around at our lives today. Look at the condition of the church, especially in America, how divided churches are. 
Do you think that that doesn't grieve God's heart? But it's right into the plans of the enemy, right? And we look at one another and we say, well, we don't like the way that you worship. Or we don't like the way that you pray. Or we don't like the way that you preach. Or we don't like the way that you dress. Or we don't like your views on the end times. Or we don't like your doctrine. Or whatever it may be. And it's division, 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 division. And the enemy is dividing and conquering the church because we've allowed him to sow seeds of division in the body. This is the way he operates. Why would he do this himself, Jesus reasons? Look inside your home just for a moment. Is your home divided? Husband against wife, father against son, mother against daughter, daughter against son, brother against sister. Is your home divided? Have you allowed the enemy a stronghold, access, a foothold into your home because he's dividing and he's conquering. This is his plan. This is how he works. To separate you and to pick you off one at a time. That's why a family that is unified, that is united, is so strong and so dangerous. That's why a church that is unified and united scares the enemy because there's nothing we can't accomplish with the spirit of God in us if we are united. But if he divides us, He's winning the battle. He's winning the fight. Look at our country for a moment and think about this just for a moment. How divided our country is. Red versus blue. Democrat versus Republican. Liberal versus conservative. Right down the middle, like 50-50. Our enemies don't have to do a thing because we're beating each other up. That's the enemy's plan is to divide and to conquer. Why would he do this to himself, Jesus says. Remember what we've been studying here in Ephesians chapter six. Paul says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, the schemes, the battle plan, the strategies of the devil. Put on the armor of God so that you can withstand the devil. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities. There's a rank and a file. Satan is battling us. He's fighting against us. And there's organization. There is unity. There is purpose. And we are neglecting the fight. We are destroying ourselves because we've allowed the enemy to divide us. And we need to put an end to it. It's scary to think of what the enemy has done, how he's weaseled his way into us. He... he, He goes on, and in verse 20, he speaks of the visitation of God in the form of Messiah. The visitation, if you're taking notes, write that down. The visitation, look at verse 20. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. See, you you want to deny that I'm doing this by the power of God because you don't want to confess that I would be the Christ, that I would be the Messiah. So if it's not Satan who's doing this, but if it's by the finger of God that this is happening, then you need to understand that God is visiting you in the flesh. And I am right here in front of you and I'm not going anywhere. This is a reference, the finger of God is a reference back to Numbers, excuse me, to Exodus chapter six, or chapter eight. Exodus chapter eight, where the, the plagues, they're in the middle of the plagues. And I believe it's the third plague where uh, Moses tells Aaron, God tells Moses to tell Aaron to take his staff and to strike the dust of the earth and that gnats will arise. And so he takes his staff, does Aaron, he strikes the earth and gnats cover the land. And Pharaoh says to his magicians, I want you to replicate that sign, that wonder to prove 
that they're just working magic, that it's not really God that is working. And so the magicians do what they can to try to replicate this sign, and they try to strike the ground with their own staffs, but nothing happens. And finally they say, Pharaoh, you need to understand that this is the finger of God. There's no other way that this can happen. Jesus is making reference to that. There's no other way that that mute man can be delivered, rescued, except the finger of God has come. You need to be ready. This is the way he said it in Matthew chapter 12. He says this, but if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If I'm doing this by the power of the spirit of God, then you need to be prepared because Messiah is here. You need to be repenting. You need to be confessing your sins. You need to be uh, turning from your wickedness and you need to make sure your heart is ready because the kingdom of God has arrived. And now here comes this elaborate illustration that Jesus gives and it begins with the fortification of the strong man. The strong man, look at this verse 21. When a strong man who is fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying that a strong man, this is a reference, he, he's, he's, uh, this is a, a metaphor for Satan. He's saying Satan is the strong man and he's in his palace and he's guarding his spoils. He's guarding his goods. You know who those spoils are? You know who those goods are? You know what that property is that he's guarding? It's everyone who's fallen into sin and is practicing sin and is trapped by their sin and shackled by their sin today. And those chains are heavy and those chains are strong. It's every meth addict that is selling what they can sell in order to get their next fix. And the enemy feeds that addiction. It's every alcoholic that is given over to the bottle and the enemy feeds that addiction. It's every person that is filled with lust and that is seeking after the next thing that they can see with their eyes and entertain their eyes and the enemy feeds that addiction. It's every person that is, is consumed with gluttony and trying to figure out what their next meal is going to be and the enemy feeds that lust. The enemy doesn't care what it takes to destroy you as long as you're destroyed. He's content. It doesn't matter what, what vice you're involved in, what sin you're involved in, what those chains look like, as long as you're chained, he is content. The scripture says that the enemy comes to steal, kill, and to destroy. This is what it says in Ephesians chapter two. It says this, and you were once dead in your trespasses and your sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, following after Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we once all lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. That's right where Satan wants you. Shackled with your lust, shackled with your addiction, shackled with your bitterness, shackled with your unforgiveness. He wants you dead in your sin. But thank the Lord that though those chains are strong, that those chains are heavy, there is a stronger one than Satan. There's a stronger one than those chains. And this is what Jesus is saying in the next verse. He says in verse 22, but when the stronger when a stronger, when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and he divides the spoils. A stronger one 
then Satan has come. The finger of God has arrived. The Christ, the Messiah is here. Are you ready for him? Are you ready for the stronger one? See, the Lord wants to deliver you today. He doesn't want you to suffer in your shackles or in your chains, not a day longer. He wants you to know that he is able to deliver you from all that has bound you in the past. He wants you to know that he can bring life where there was death, that he can bring freedom where there was slavery. He wants you to know that the stronger one has arrived. Throughout the course of scripture, we see people who have come up against insurmountable odds. That storm is raging, those waves are billowing, they're crashing into the vessel, the vessel is sinking, and they cry out, God save me, and he comes through. Take the story of Gideon in the book of Judges, chapter six and seven, you can read it tonight. In chapter six, God comes to Gideon and says, Gideon, I want to raise you up as a deliverer to deliver my people from the hand of the Midianites. And Gideon says, I think you've got the wrong guy because my, my clan is the weakest of all the clans of Israel and I'm the weakest within my clan. I'm the least of the least. I'm the bottom of the barrel. Why would you want me? And he says, listen, it's not about you, Gideon. It's because I'm going to be with you. And so Gideon raises up an army and God says to Gideon, you know what? You have too many people with you. There's too many people for you to go to battle because I don't want for you to think that you won this battle on your own. I want you to realize that I won this battle for you. So tell anyone who's afraid to return and go home. And 22,000 people go back home and he's left with 10,000. And God says to Gideon, you know what? Still too many people. This is what I want you to do. Anyone who drinks from the river with their hand cupped to their face, they can, you can keep them. But anyone who just bends down and drinks like an animal would drink out of the water, send them all home. So they go to the water and they drink and only 300 cup their hand and bring it to their mouth. And the Lord says, send the rest home. So now he has 300 soldiers to go to battle with him. And the scripture says in Judges chapter seven, you can read this later, that the enemy that they faced were numbered like the locusts, that their camels were without number like the, the, the grains of sand in the sea. That's how many camels they had. And with 300 people, God says, I want you to go and I want you to destroy the Midianites, deliver the Midianites from the, so that you and your people can be delivered from this oppression with 300 people. And then Gideon does this. He divides his 300 into three companies, 100 in each company, and they split up and they surround the Midianite camp and they have torches in their hands and jars in their hands and they have uh, trumpets in their hands and they cry out aloud, they blow their trumpet, they throw the, the jars onto the ground and they're blowing those trumpets with their torches in their hands and in the middle of the night, the Midianites wake up and they turn their swords on one another in confusion and they're, they're, they're wiped out. Why? Because God fought the battle for Gideon. Because even though the armies of the Midianites were strong, God was stronger. Take the story of David and Goliath just for a moment. Many of you know the story. He comes upon the scene. His, his brothers are there in this this battle is being waged between the Israelites and the Philistines. And every day for 40 days, Goliath is coming out day and night, challenging one person, just one person 
from the, the Israelites that will come and do battle against me. And for 40 days, there isn't a person in the nation of Israel that will answer the call, that will answer the bell. But David comes and he sees what's going on and in his heart, he despises what Goliath does. How dare he defy the armies of the living God? How dare he defy God like that? What will happen? What will the king give to the man who goes out and, and brings him his head? They said, well, he'll give him his daughter in marriage. He'll forgive all the debt in, the la- in, in that person's land. He, he, he'll, he'll be like the, the, the son in his own house. David says, I can do that. I can fight that fight. And he goes to Saul, and Saul looks at his stature. He says, you're just a boy. There's no way you can fight this guy. Goliath was nine feet tall. David's just a little boy. And David, you know what David says? He looks, he looks at Saul, and he says, you don't understand what I've seen and what I've done. You don't ever understand the battle that I've been in. See, I tend my father's sheep, and when a bear or a lion comes to attack my father's sheep, I take that bear or that lion in my hands, and I've defeated them. I've taken them from the jaws of defeat, my father's lambs. Just like God delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, God will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Why? Because, yeah, Goliath is big, The Philistines are big, they're strong, but my God is stronger. He's already proven it to me. But the story of Daniel, people who are jealous of his position in the the kingdom, and so they convince the king to make a law that anyone who's caught praying to anyone other than the king will be thrown in a den of lions. And when Daniel hears that this is the threat, you know what he does? He goes to his room, he opens the door, the balcony, he prays towards Jerusalem morning, noon, and evening, just like he's always done. And the, the people who are jealous of Daniel, they bring report back. Daniel's praying to someone other than you. You gotta throw him into the den of lions. And so he gets thrown into the den of lions. And the king says, I'm gonna come back tomorrow to see if your God can deliver you from the mouths of the lions. The king comes back the next morning. They remove the seal that is set against the the, the den of lions. And down there at the bottom of the den is Daniel. And the king calls out, was your God able to deliver you? He says, my God sent angels to shut the mouths of those lions. My God is able to deliver me because these lions are strong. But what? My God is stronger. A woman with the flow of blood for 12 years Here's that Jesus is coming to town. The scripture says she spent all of her livelihood looking for some way to be healed, looking for some way to cause her bleeding to stop. She's been unclean for 12 years. She's ostracized from her culture. She's ostracized from the synagogue. She can't go in to worship the Lord with other people. She has to keep to herself, completely cut off from culture. She hears Jesus is in the vicinity. She makes her way through the crowds of people. And she says in her heart, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I will be made whole. I will be healed. And so that's exactly what she does. She muscles her way through the crowds of people, all trying to to compete for Jesus' attention. And she reaches out to touch the hem of his prayer shawl, the mantle, the anointing. It's a symbol of his anointing. She reaches out to touch it, and immediately Jesus stops because he says, I felt power go out of me. See, this woman comes to Jesus in faith because she sees, you know what, my sickness is strong. My disease is strong. I've spent all that I can to try to rectify this, to try to find healing, but someone stronger than my disease is here. My sickness is strong, but 
God is stronger. And she's healed as she touches his hem. Jesus encourages us in Matthew chapter six to not worry about what we will eat or what we will wear or what we will drink because your father in heaven knows all of these things that you need. You might have a need that you feel is strong, that is big, that there's just no way it can be met. What Jesus says in Matthew chapter six is you might have needs that are big, you might have needs that are strong, but your God is bigger and he is stronger and he knows what you need. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 17 that if you have faith just the size of a mustard seed, no matter how big the mountain that stands before you, you can say to that mountain, move from here to there, and it will move if you just have faith the size of a mustard seed. Your mountain might seem big, but your God is bigger. How about your sin? How many of you are sitting there thinking, you just don't understand what I've done, what I've seen, the people that I've hurt, There are things that I cannot undo. There's things that I cannot unsay. There's just no hope for me. Let me tell you about the cross. Because at the cross, the world grew dark for a few hours. And when Jesus is hanging on that cross and he cries out to tell us that it is finished, the earth shakes and the graves are opened and the veil in the temple is torn in two. And three days later, he rises from the dead. Why? Because though your sin is strong, the cross is stronger. Romans chapter five, it says this. It says, now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Yes, your sin might be strong, but God's grace is stronger. You need to understand that a stronger one than, this, than Satan has arrived on the scene. Stronger than Satan. Don't be in, 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 distracted or discouraged by the strength of the enemy because the one who is on your side is even stronger than he. Listen again what this says, verse 22. But when the stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor. He strips away that armor. He strips it, lays him bare. Listen to what it says in Colossians chapter two. It says that he disarmed, he stripped the rulers and the authorities. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them in it. He he triumphed over his enemies. He stripped them, laid them bare, took off the armor. They have no hope now because the stronger than the the enemy has arrived because Jesus himself is here. In Philippians chapter two, it says that God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him, speaking of Jesus, a name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus will win the battle. Every knee will bow. He will bring them all into subjection. It says there that he attacks, he overcomes, and then he divides the spoil. You are the spoil. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Do you know what that joy was? First and foremost, it was being obedient to the Father's will, but secondly, that joy was you. You are the spoils. You are what he wins for the cross. You are what he wins for his suffering. You are the the reward for his suffering. You are the spoils. Listen to what the scripture says in Galatians chapter four. It says this, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but you are a son. And if you are a son, 
then you are an heir through God. No longer are you a slave. No longer are you bound. No longer are you chained to the enemy. No longer do you belong to the enemy's spoils because the stronger man has kicked down the door and he's bound the enemy himself and he sets you free. He sets you free. John chapter eight, Jesus says this, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but a son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be what? Free indeed. Free indeed. Set free from your sin. The strong man has delivered you and has rescued you. And this brings us to a point of decision. Every single one of you this morning has a responsibility. You have a responsibility with what you know of Jesus. And you have to make sure that you take very seriously the choice that you have. Because with that responsibility, you have to make a determination this morning. You cannot leave without making a choice. To try to say that I'm just going to wait and choose later is to choose. You understand that, right? To not make a choice is to make a choice. It's impossible for you to be indifferent here. Look at what Jesus said here. He says, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. You have to make a choice. There's a determination that has to be made. You're either with Jesus or you're not. You're either gathering with him or you're scattering. What's it going to be this morning? You have to make that determination. That responsibility lies squarely in your lap. Revelation chapter three, Jesus speaks to the church of Laodicea. And he says, you can't be lukewarm. You can't live with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. You can't play footsies with sin and with the flesh and with the ways of the world and try to follow after the things of the spirit. It can't happen. You can't do both. Jesus said, I wish you were either hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I will vomit you from my mouth. You have no place in my presence if you're trying to play both sides. You have to make a choice. You have to make a determination. Joshua said this as he was parting from his people. He says, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you will dwell. But as for me and as for my house, we're gonna choose to serve the Lord. You have to choose this morning. Are you for or against? Do you gather with or do you scatter abroad? Look at the next portion of scripture here. It says in verse 24, this is how serious this decision, this determination is. When the unclean spirit has, has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places and seeking rest and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house has been swept and put into order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself and they enter and dwell there and the last state of the person is worse than the first. It's not enough for the demon to come out of you. It's not enough for you to be delivered from your sin, from those things that used to control your life. You need regeneration. You need to be born again. You need the spirit of God to dwell within you. And if you cast all the, if all of the demons that are in you are cast out and you don't replace it with the spirit of the living God, your condition will just end up worse than when it began. Jesus said, here's the thing. He's been delivered, but he has to make a choice. He's got to determine. He's got to to call upon me. He needs to be regenerated. He needs to be reborn, completely new. He needs the spirit of God dwelling within him. 
The sad fact of the church today is that we're so consumed with trying to clean up our culture that we forgot that our call isn't to clean up the culture but to preach the gospel. And there are things that, yes, we absolutely we need to stand for. We need to stand for uh, against abortion. It grieves God's heart. We need to stand for traditional marriage. It grieves God's heart to, to not have traditional marriage. But we're so distracted chasing after these things that we forgot that our call is to preach the gospel. What good is it if we rid our culture of abortion and homosexuality and lying and wickedness and murders and wars if all we have done is created a bunch of clean sinners who are going to hell? They need the spirit of God living within them. The only way that happens is when the gospel is preached. Matthew chapter five, Jesus said this, you are the light of the world. A city set upon a hill cannot be hidden, nor do the people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. You have such an amazing opportunity, church to shine as a light in the midst of darkness. Do not be distracted by the things that are secondary. You have to make the primary focus the primary focus, and that has to be the gospel. It is the power of the gospel that saves. Doesn't matter how clean you are, how righteous you are, how moral you are, you can have all the morality in the world, and if you've rejected Jesus, you're still in your sin. responsibility that we all have leads us to the final point. If you're taking notes there, write this down, the report. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says that this man who was met and who was delivered from this possession was not only mute, but that he was also blind. It says then a demon-possessed man was blind and mute, was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and he saw. This is my spiritual state before I came to Christ. I was blind and I was mute. I would say I was even deaf. I was hopeless. I was in need of rescue. I was sinking in my sin. The waves were crashing over my head. I had nowhere to go. I needed someone who would come and deliver me, who would rescue me, who would take me from those waters in which I was drowning. And the scripture says that this is exactly what Jesus does. Colossians chapter one, he has delivered us. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Jesus rescues us. He is the strong man who kicks down the door of the less strong man who sets you free from your sin, who takes you as his own, as his spoil, who takes you back into his presence, who makes you a son where you were once a slave. He is the one who comes for you. I'm reminded of the story of the blind man who was blind from birth in John chapter nine. And the religious leaders are frustrated with him because he's not giving him the right answers, not giving them the answers that they want. Admit it, this guy's a sinner. Just admit he's a sinner because he, he healed you on the Sabbath. Admit it. And the man says, listen, I can't tell you all you want to know about this man. I can't tell you who he is. Whether he's a sinner or not, I can't answer. One thing I know, one thing I understand, though I was blind, now I see. I can't tell you everything you need to know about Jesus. All I can do is tell you what he's done for me. And here's the thing, that is all that God requires from you. That's the only report he needs from you. Just tell people what I've done for you. Just be faithful to tell people what I've done for you. 
In Acts chapter one, Jesus gives a commission to his disciples and he says, go into all the world and be witnesses unto me. Tell people what you've seen, what you've heard. Tell them what I've done. That is your requirement. In, in Matthew chapter 28, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore to make disciples. I have the authority to send you and I'm giving you the authority as you go. Listen to how the Great Commission is described in Mark chapter 16. It says this, he says, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole of creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Listen, I want you to not lose this. I want you to make sure this sinks, sinks deep down within your heart. These signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will what? Cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. We're in a war. We're in a battle. There's a strong man who wants us, but there's a stronger man that is on our side. And this stronger man has already won the spoils and he comes to you who were once a slave, now a son. And he says, the authority that I have, I'm giving it to you. The authority over sickness, over disease, over demonic possession, I'm giving it to you. Go use it. Go make use of it. See, in this warfare, if you catch a glimpse behind the scenes, you are the mode through which Jesus wants to conquer today. The kingdom is here. He wants to use you. He's given you the authority to go out and to heal and to set people free. The one who delivered you looks you in the eye today and he says, now go deliver someone else. Go rescue someone what an amazing privilege. What an amazing responsibility we each have to go and to tell people what Jesus has done. I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know, maybe you felt like when you walked in here today that you were that mute man. You have lips, but you just can't express what God has done. You just can't say it. You have no reason to praise. God wants to restore that to you today. He wants to give you reason to praise. Just like Peter, water billowing over the boat. Lord, call me out onto the waters. He takes those first few unsteady steps and he remembers the war going on around. He remembers the storm. He remembers the difficulty and he begins to sink. He cries out, Lord, save me. You can cry out to Jesus today and he will rescue you. You can be sure that he will rescue you. You can cry out to the name of Jesus. I need you. I'm suffering. I'm losing. I'm being beaten in this storm. Will you save me? And he will rescue you today. You just gotta cry out. Father, I pray that in these next few moments that you would move upon my friends' hearts to respond in obedience to the word that you've given today. Lord, that they would in faith, come believing that you are the same God today who rescues today that has always rescued. You've always been there to deliver and to rescue. 
Your whole Bible, the whole scripture is a story of deliverance. It's a story of redemption. It's a story of sinners being set free, people being set free from slavery and being made sons. And so Lord, collectively together today, we come to your presence and we reach up our hand from the water and we say, save me, Jesus. Save me today. Meet us in this place, we pray in Jesus' name.